Hello. Hi. I'm Shannon. I'm Emma. And it's just us today, kids. Welcome to This Podcast Doesn't Exist. Hi, friends. Did you enjoy our nice run of guests? Because we really did. I love it when we have a friend on the pod. Not that you are not my friend, but that we collectively have a friend on the pod. Yes. And then our pod fiends get to make a new friend. Yeah, that's nice. And this pod that you are a fiend of is This Podcast Doesn't Exist. Hi. Hope you're happy. Hope you're having a great time. We're having a great time. We are. Yeah. We are once again coming to you via Zoom. Well, yes. we're coming to you via the normal methods. But yes. we, we are, are in the virtual nook. We are uh, speaking to each other in the Zoom room uh, because uh, I got an organ taken out. No, I will not be explaining further. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have glue dots keeping my body closed. It's a fun time. We we so do we, but overall, you're feeling good. Oh yeah, I'm feeling Great. mostly fine. Mostly, <laughs> there's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. <laughs> <laughs> Your guy is mostly dead. Mostly dead. Well, we hope you're not mostly dead. But even if you're mostly dead, you can follow us on social media or write us an email um, and rate and review and subscribe to the podcast and. You can do all of those things from one easy peasy, simple, beautiful, breezy cover girl location. Um, this podcast doesn't exist dot com dot com. I was waiting for you to say cover girl because I knew we weren't going to get an end. You were like, I can't finish it with anything I else. Like, I have to keep going. I was raised by America's Next Top Model. Um <laughs> We were rooting for you. We were all rooting all for rooting you. For you. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Any other housekeeping? I don't think so. I think I'm ready to jump right into what you have for us today. Great. Do I need to buckle in in any capacity? Do I need to be like bar pulled down on the roller coaster you're going to take us on, or is it more of a a car seatbelt situation? We're just going to jaunt along the road and sightsee. Like what are what are we what's the vibe today? I don't think you want to be buckled in. You oh you want I to want be a quick in. escape? <laughs> Potentially, yeah. <laughs> I will warn. I started giving Emma this disclaimer before we started recording, and then I went, no, never mind. I'm saving it for the pod. I went pretty deep. I gotta warn you. Oh, there's a lot of notes. <laughs> Okay, but welcome, everybody, as you listen to this. Welcome to December and theoretically wintertime. It's currently 85 degrees outside in mid-November, so I don't have very high hopes. But theoretically, it's the holiday season. It's the holiday season. This has nothing to do with the holidays, just winter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we think of those times as cold. And Emma, it's it's been a minute since we've dissected the audacity of man's ambition, so I thought I'd bring you a new explorer story today. I'm living for this. I'm so excited. <laughs> so we first heard tell of Swedish scientist and explorer Salomon August André during our George Melville Boynton episode. Wait, I know what we're doing. I'm so excited. 
Our old pal, George Papersuit Boynton, wrote to the it's... American Geographical Society in April 1900, stating that he had, quote, decided to try and reach the Earth's northern axis by means of an airship, unquote. He also wrote that his method of reaching the pole would be, quote, very similar to that of poor Andre. But why was the fate of Andre so poor? That's what we're here to learn today, kids. So, I'm so excited. Here we this go. Was, this was something I'd pulled up a very long time ago as like an option mm-hmm. to re- because it's a very Shannon kind of episode. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I'll, gi- I'll give her this little treat. And then I hadn't gotten around to it. So I'm very thank you for giving me this treat. You're welcome. Just a little, a little Swedish little. delight. <laughs> Not a Turkish <laughs> delight, a Swedish delight. A little Swedish fish. Uh, yes. All right. So first we're going to start with a little bit of background, because of course we do. Salomon August Andre, which let me be very clear. I haven't looked up how to say this man's name, so I might be saying it wrong the whole time. I, th- look, this is what happens when you wait till the night before. At 9 p.m. to do your research, kids. <laughs> and then do a deep dive. <laughs> yeah. So, apologies to a dead Swede if I'm saying it wrong. He was born in a tiny Swedish town in 1854. Shout out to Wikipedia for the following rundown. He attended the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm and obtained a degree in mechanical engineering in 1874. In 1876, he went to the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, where he was employed as a janitor at the Swedish Pavilion. During his trip to the United States, he read a book on trade winds and met the American balloonist John Wise. These encounters initiated his lifelong fascination with balloon travel. I... Sorry, just to pause for a quick second. Sure. You are in full NPR mode right now. It's really... This is who I am when the microphone is, like, that close. Easy to maneuver, I feel like. Yeah. (laughs) It's just really cute. (laughs) He returned to Sweden and opened a machine shop where he worked until 1880. It was less than successful, and he soon looked for other employment. Oh, buddy. From 1880 to 1882, he was an assistant at the Royal Institute of Technology, and in 1882 to 83, he participated in a Swedish scientific expedition to Spitsbergen, led by Nils Ekholm, where he was responsible for observations regarding air electricity. Starting in 1885, he was employed by the Swedish Patent Office. Good for him. (laughs) It's where Einstein got his start, too, in the patent office, you know. Cool. As a scientist, Andre published scientific journals about air electricity, the conduction of heat, and inventions. He sounds like an adorable little nerd. My thing is air electricity. Sir, what? (laughs) What? Hold on. I'm going to put a photo of this man in the chat because I feel like you'll appreciate his his little vibe. He... His mustache is mustachin. Yeah. It's it's out and proud. As it should be. It's very it's about as big as his little cravat. <laughs> now I'm just picturing a phase where where gentlemen would style their mustaches to match their bow ties. 
Oh my gosh, how cute would that be? That'd be quite a look. Matchy, matchy. Matchy, matchy stashy. Matchy, stashy. Please welcome to the stage. Matchy, matchy stashy. stashy. <laughs> Oh, goodness. All right. Now we're going to talk about balloons. Oh! One source describes Andre as, quote, an individualist who could pursue one line of thought as tenaciously as a tightrope artist performing on the high wire, unquote. Oh. So hyperfocus. Yeah, we love a hyperfixation. His first craft was the Sve, S-V-E-A. Sve. The Sve? The Svee? I don't know. Which he <laughs> had persuaded the publisher of Afson Blattet, an evening newspaper in Stockholm, to buy from him, to buy for him, quote, to promote public welfare and science, unquote. In this craft, he made many significant weather observations, studied the speed and movement of sound, and took some remarkable aerial photographs. His greatest accomplishments in the early 1890s were several daring and unprecedented flights across the Baltic Sea. Then, in 1895, Andre startled his associates by announcing, quote, It is possible, and even feasible, for a balloon to fly to the North Pole. Oh. <laughs> even the skeptics listened as Andre passionately explained just why and how a balloon could forever outmode the plodding, laborious method of packing across the ice on foot or with dogs and sledges. Sledges or sleds, for those of you who are not, uh, you know, really into the adventurous side of things. <laughs> Uh, I find it very funny that they were like, we need a different word. We just need a different word for this. <laughs> sledges are for for work and sleds are for fun. Sleds are down a hill. Sledges are for the dogs to pull. Yeah. Or our people. Or um, people. Quote, the winds are steady, he pointed out. From Spitsbergen, you can almost count on a northerly wind of two weeks duration. It will carry a balloon across the roof of the world and beyond to Alaska, unquote. Oh, I like that phrase, roof of the world. But people are like, how is a balloon going to stay up that long ago? Like, what's what's happening? What? Fair, fair question. But he had an answer to this, too. Okay. Quote, in the summertime, conditions would be ideal. Constant daylight would keep the temperature variation within a few degrees. Therefore, the gas would neither expand much nor contract. The result would be a minimum amount of leakage and no need to valve off precious gas because of expansion. By attaching a sail to the bag, a balloonist could increase the speed so that the distance would be covered well within the 15 to 20 day period of buoyancy his craft could have, unquote. Okay, I believe him because <laughs> I also am not a air an air electrician. Sure. So that's what I'm going to call him. He's Nor are you an aerialist of any no. sort. Nope, not a. I don't like the sky. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't not like a, you either. <laughs> nope, I'm not a fan of. I don't like wind. I don't. <laughs> My least favorite weather is wind. <laughs> I wrote a poem about it in college. Wow. About how much I disliked wind. Wow. 
have to find it. Okay. Put it in the show notes. Yeah. On May 31st, 1896, after more than a year of preparation, the first Andre Polar Expedition left Stockholm on a tidal wave of patriotic fervor. Andre hit headlines all across the world as he left for Danes Island in the vest of the Svalbard Archipelago, then known as Spitsbergen. 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 No, with a B. Such a fun name. Spitsbergen. Spitsbergen. I mean, this is Swedish. Spitsbergen. (laughs) But berg in German means mountain, so I'm assuming it's similar. Oh, that may, yeah, it's probably pretty similar. Then, for six weeks, the world, and especially Sweden, waited expectantly while the expedition remained weathered in at the advance base. Oh. And wait, they would continue to do because the right wind and weather conditions never came. Oh. On August 17th, Andre was forced to concede. The balloon was deflated and the expedition crept back to Stockholm like a squonk on a moonlit night. (laughs) Great callback. Thank you. Great callback to another episode. Are you confused? Go back and listen to the backlog. Are you playing the bingo card? You probably got that one. Almost overnight, the man who had been labeled a national hero because of his previous daring flights became an object of criticism and ridicule. But it wasn't his fault, it was the weather. But they don't care. I know. He was called a fraud by some journalists, <gasps> a publicity seeker by others. Even the most sympathetic newspapers conceded that his chances of ballooning to the North Pole were as limp as the deflated bag. Wow. <laughs> that great did you do that? <laughs> no, I think that was that was one of our sources. <laughs> Regardless, great. I love that. Yeah. What a good simile. Yeah. That fall and winter, our intrepid hero stewed on the issue. When spring 1897 rolled around, buoyed by new funding from Alfred Nobel, yes, that Nobel, Andre decided to make a second go of it. This time, the Swedish government assigned a gunboat, the Svenshund, to accompany the expedition to Danes Island, with an expert crew to repair the balloon hangar, dig the gas apparatus out of the snow, and help with launching. Quote, We cannot fail, said Andre, over and over with an almost pathological insistence, indicating that this time he would get his balloon, the Eagle, airborne at all costs. The Swede would not be alone in his Arctic flight. Accompanying him would be... Mm, mm, <laughs> Knut. <laughs> K-N-U-T. Frankel. And Nils Strindberg, who is apparently a cousin of Sweden's most famous playwright, whose name I didn't oh. write down. Hey, but the Swedes, the Swedes out there know. They know. They know. That they guy. got it. <laughs> Strindberg. Shout out to the Swedes out there. Frankel was a civil engineer with considerable Arctic experience. At 27, he was a mountaineer, gymnast, and railroad builder. Hot. <laughs> I just love that back in the day, you did not have to pick a job. You could just no, get any job. Absolutely not. As long as you knew somebody who knew somebody, they'd be like, yeah, you look normal. You're a man. Here. Come on over. <laughs> Um, 
Though he had crashed twice while ballooning, he regarded the experience as, quote, rare sport. <laughs> Strindberg, 24, was more of an intellectual with a background as a university professor, to which I wrote. At 24? To which I wrote, it's giving Sandy Irvin vibes, like the young guy. Oh, yeah. Furthermore, he was strikingly handsome. A fact that brought the expedition a multitude of female well-wishers. Again, I say, hot. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that he's 24 and he was a professor. Maybe they wrote professor, but he was like a TA. (laughs) Or like he he taught in a schoolroom or something. something. And like they gave him professor as like a title. Maybe he just wore a lot of blazers with elbow patches. (laughs) Elbow patches. I think in my head, I just have such an idea of what academia looks like now that I forget that at that point in time, academia was a very different world. Yeah. So I don't know. But still, again, I say hot. (laughs) (laughs) Emma is one of the female well-wishers. I am. So Strindberg was a photographer and he had designed a special reflex camera in a sealed case to take pictures as the balloon soared over the polar ice. So that's fun. That is fun. Um, And then this is a quote from Wikipedia, which now that I've just read that one of them is 27 and one of them is 24 is a bit of a read, but I'm going to still read it. Quote... (laughs) This was a team with many useful scientific and technical skills, but lacking any particular physical prowess or training for survival under extreme conditions. All three men were indoor types, and only one, Strindberg, was young. Damn, Wikipedia, (gasps) you're trying to say 27 is old? We're ancient. I love that they're like, so these men were indoor cats. Yeah, they were. (laughs) And one of them was a geriatric indoor cat. (laughs) They were not, they were about to go straight from indoor to wild. No bubble backpack for them. No bubble backpack. Well, I guess, I mean, Emma and I were really planning on starting an Arctic. Uh, We were going to go, but we're too old. So I guess, I guess, yeah, we don't, we don't hit the, yeah, I'm way too, I'm geriatric in the eyes of in the eyes of wikipedia apparently the air balloon would look at you and just laugh yeah (laughs) it would puff up and down be like if anyone thinks anyone around here is full of hot air it's you (laughs) i love that the air balloon is a drag queen (laughs) i just i just finished an episode of drag race Ah, that explains it (laughs) ruse in my head (laughs) ruse in the walls ruse in the walls Okay, so we're going to talk about the balloon itself. In Swedish, it's the Uren, Urnen, which means the eagle. So I'm going to call it the eagle. <laughs> but I felt obligated to at least try. I'm very proud of you for trying. Urnen. There's an umlaut. <laughs> I'm not a Swede. It's messing with you. I'm not a Swede. I'm trying to apply German pronunciation to Swedish and I don't know if that's offensive or inaccurate. Anyway, the bag was 97 feet high and 68 feet in diameter and it was made from 600 pieces of pongi silk which is silk gathered from wild moths and apparently it was once a very important export of China to the US and Europe. 
Because I read that and I'm like, what is that? What is that? Yeah. So I learned about it on a on an umbrella manufacturer's website. Ooh. Yeah. Back to the the air balloon. Meticulously constructed by Henri La Chambre, the upper two thirds of the bag was three ply, both for strength and reduction of leakage, and the lower third was two ply. The finished bag was carefully varnished inside and out so that, though weighing a ton and a half because of this extra process, it was supposedly impervious. Where have we heard that before? Um, That's a scary word to be throwing around. Yeah. For anything. I feel like you're not like it feels like bad luck no matter what. Yeah. What year is this? It's before the Titanic. It is 18... 1897. So we're like, what, 20 years out from yeah. Titanic. But they, sh- I feel like the ti- the people of the Titanic would have known. I don't know. There's like some kind of like folly well, of man. A boat is different. It's different to see. We're building a boat. We're building a ship. It's different this time. Okay. More than 380 hempen cords formed a netting over the bag. On the underside, they were woven together to form a dozen ropes, which then passed through a bearing ring-shaped from American Elm and were secured to the basket. That was word salad that I will not be explaining, but it seemed important (laughs) to mention. Let me me break it down. The rings on the edge of the basket are made out of elm. Got it. And that's what the ropes are going through to attach the silk to the basket. Great. Good job. I got I got it. I understood your word salad. Great. The basket was made of wicker and wood and designed as a double decker, which was wild to me. I was like, I'm sorry, a double decker hot air balloon? On top, in an area about six feet in diameter, was the observation platform, similar to that on most balloons. Below was a compartment that had a mattress and sleeping bag of reindeer skins and was tight and solid enough in construction to serve as a dark room. Around the walls of both decks were small compartments with the wide variety of equipment the three men had gathered. Photographic supplies, food, extra clothing, navigational instruments, maps, books, utensils, and other items. Guns and ammunition were fitted into a space in the floor of the lower compartment. The expedition had enough food for an estimated three and a half months. Included were special lemon lozenges to prevent scurvy, a concoction made of 55 pounds of chocolate and pulverized pemmican shaped into solid cakes, and two bottles of port presented to them by the king. Wow. I'm a little concerned about the fact that there's guns on board is that for if they stop and need meat yes i would assume yeah yeah not like defense <laughs> i know i was like confused i was like why are we attaching guns to the hot air balloon they get into a sky war obviously <laughs> Ooh, that's the fantasy novel i want uh, uh stardust by neil gaiman done Ugh, such a good book <laughs> But to which I, after this list of miscellaneous food things, I wrote only the essentials, obvi. <laughs> yeah. Need your Ovaltine in cake form. Yummy. There were also 
36 homing pigeons in wicker cages, which had been trained in the Arctic and were supposedly capable of taking messages back to Spitsbergen from any faraway point along the route. Talk about loud. (laughs) True. And smelly. I hadn't even thought about that. That's a lot of birds. Andre's idea was to develop photographs along the way and send prints back by carrier pigeon and by cylinders dropped into the sea. In this way, a valuable record of the Arctic would get back to civilization, even if the expedition did not. All right, planning ahead. Cool. For science. For science. And glory. (laughs) Andre had devised a sledge that would come apart to form two a collapsible canvas boat, and other unique items of equipment. And here's where it gets real topsy-turvy. Oh. He had also devised a system of automatic ballasting that did not require valving or throwing sandbags over the side. This consisted of a harness with three heavy coconut fiber ropes, each over a thousand feet long. Drag ropes, which would hang from the balloon basket and drag part of their length on the ground, are designed to counteract the tendency of lighter-than-air craft to travel at the same speed as the wind, a situation that makes steering the sails impossible. Because remember, they were attaching a a sail to their hot air balloon. The friction of the ropes against the ice was intended to slow the balloon to the point where the sails would have an effect beyond that of making the balloon rotate on its axis. The ropes waxed at the lower ends were supposed to drag easily across the surface of water and air, their combined weight being enough to pull the balloon down about 10 feet for every 20 feet of length the aeronauts hauled into the basket. On his Earlier ballooning ventures in the sphere, Andre reported and presumably believed that with drag rope steering, he had succeeded in deviating about 10 degrees either way from the wind direction. In its standard trailing position, the ropes would hold the eagle at about 600 to 700 feet as she rode. So, he believed wholeheartedly in this fun little steering situation rope's gonna keep you down yeah and it's gonna like oh we're gonna drop this rope over here it'll help us turn like i guess in like mario kart physics it makes sense but in like real life physics i don't know how that's supposed to work axel was trying to explain to me and our friend caroline who's also been on the pod last night about ships versus boats And that one of the main ways that you can tell the difference or the ways that they have classified that the difference is, is that boats will turn into the turn. So like, like if you're sitting in a car, if you're, if you were to turn into the turn, you would be like leaning towards the angle of the turn. Does that make sense? Like if I'm turning left, I would be I would be moving left. Yeah. But that's not what happens in a car. You turn the other way because of the way so it's turning away from the turn. So in ships, they turn away from the turn, whereas boats turn into the turn. So like a kayak is a boat because it turns into the turn. But a ship is a ship, like a cruise ship, because it turns away from the turn in order to make the full 
turn into it. So I probably didn't explain that well. Both Caroline and I were like, what do you mean? Yeah, in this moment, I am very definitively a visual learner. So I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Despite Andre's foresight and attention to detail, the balloon had one dangerous flaw. (laughs) She leaked. Oh, no. While in the shed... Being readied for flight, it was found that she lost about 35 cubic meters of gas per day. Andre tried to stop the leakage by varnishing the seams, but without much luck. The advice of everyone, including the balloon maker himself, was that the expedition should be postponed and the bag rebuilt. Quote, I do not have the courage to postpone the flight again, Andre replied, remembering the embarrassment of the year before. He was strongly supported by both Strindberg and Frankel, even though it had been demonstrated that the Eagle was losing a lift capacity of 99 pounds every 24 hours. Ugh. Boys, your ego will survive, I promise. But you might not. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Which brings us to our next chapter. Up, up, and away! <laughs> Yay! On July 11th, 1897, at 2.30 in the afternoon, the flight order was given. The sailor, responsible for cutting the final tether, nicked his finger on the knife, proclaiming, Oh, hell! Ever the vision of the enigmatic explorer, Andre leaned over the basket's side, quote, Hell, that is where we are going. <laughs> oh, what a nerd. <laughs> With his little mustache. He has his little mustache and his cravat that looks like a mustache. Yes. Moving out low over the water, the balloon was pulled so far down by the friction of the several hundred meter long drag ropes against the ground as to dip the basket into the water. The friction also twisted the ropes around, detaching them from their screw holds. Oh my gosh. Most of the ropes unscrewed at once and... 530 kilograms, 1,170 pounds of rope were lost. While the three explorers could simultaneously be seen dumping 210 kilograms, 460 pounds, of sand overboard to get the basket clear of the water. Therefore, 740 kilograms, 1,630 pounds of essential weight was thus lost in the first few minutes of the flight. Wow. Buds. Before, uh. <laughs> before it was well clear of the launch site, the Eagle had turned from a supposedly steerable craft into an ordinary hydrogen balloon with a few ropes hanging from it at the mercy of the wind. The exact opposite of what you wanted. Its crew had no means to direct it to any particular goal and had too little ballast for stability. Lightened, the balloon rose to 700 meters, or 2,300 feet, an unimagined height, where the lower air pressure made the hydrogen escape all the faster through the 8 million stitching holes in the balloon. The balloon had two means of communication with the outside world, buoys and homing pigeons. All those pigeons. So many pigeons. So many pigeons. The buoys, steel cylinders encased in cork, were intended to be dropped from the balloon into the water or onto the ice to be carried to civilization by the currents. 
only two buoy messages have ever been found. One was dispatched by Andre on July 11th, a few hours after takeoff, and reads, quote, Our journey goes well so far. We sail at an altitude of about 250 meters, 820 feet, at first north 10 degrees east, but later north 45 degrees east. Weather delightful, spirits high, unquote. Weather delightful, spirits high. Oh, baby. The second was dropped an hour later and gave the height as 600 meters or 2,000 feet. Aftenbladet, the Swedish newspaper with exclusive press rights to the expedition, had supplied the pigeons, bred in northern Norway with the optimistic hope that they would return there, and their message cylinders contained pre-printed instructions in Norwegian asking the finder to pass the messages on to the paper's address in Stockholm. Andre released at least four pigeons, but only one was ever retrieved by a Norwegian steamer where the pigeon had alighted and been promptly shot. <gasps> oh! <laughs> Sherry. Its message it's okay. is dated July 13th and gives the travel direction at that point as east by 10 degrees south. The message reads, quote, The Andre Polar Expedition to the Aftenblattet, Stockholm, 13 July, 10.30 p.m., 82 degrees north latitude, 15 degrees Five minutes east longitude. Good journey eastwards. Ten degrees south. All goes well on board. This is the third message sent by Pigeon, Andre. Unquote. Researchers point out that none of the recovered messages mention the disastrous launch or the increasingly dire circumstances on board. Well, you don't put that in writing. <laughs> Andre, however, detailed all of it in his diary. Oh, well, okay, so maybe you do put it in writing. You just don't send it to you anybody. You just keep it private. You just keep it yourself. So the next, the next chapter. <laughs> Disaster. Aww. Within 10 hours of liftoff, they were caught by powerful winds from a storm raging in the area. The heavy winds continued and, together with the rain creating ice on the balloon, impeded the flight. It is likely that Andre realized before the flight ended that they would never come near the North Pole. Hmm. Eagle traveled for two days and three and a half hours altogether, during which, according to Andre, none of the three men got any sleep. Ooh. Which I hadn't even considered. I was like, oh, yeah, because it's windy, it's loud. And then you- <laughs> and then the pigeons. Yeah. I- You're trying to lay on that mattress, which I'm sure in that space that is like closed off is where the mattresses, it's where the birds are, it's where the dark room stuff is, it's where all of the other supplies are, because you don't want to keep all those out on deck in case yeah. of high wind. Or if you do, you strap them to things. But like, I can't imagine trying to sleep with these pigeons just like, <laughs> all of a sudden having a cage fight and you're like, okay. Yeah. Free flight lasted for 10 hours and 29 minutes and was followed by another 41 hours of bumpy riding with frequent ground contact before the inevitable final crash. The definitive landing, however, appears to have been gentle. Neither the men nor the homing pigeons in their wicker cages were hurt and none of the equipment was damaged, not even the delicate optical instruments and Strindberg's two cameras. Oh. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, you figure 
they keep losing gas, so they get so get closer they... and closer to the ground until they kind of just like boop 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 doop, boop doop, chum, chum. The eagle had been stocked with safety equipment such as guns, snowshoes, sleds, skis, a tent, and a small boat in the form of a bundle of bent sticks to be assembled and covered with the balloon silk, which was smart because how else oh, are you going to have smart. a boat? Yeah, these items had not been put together with great care. Oh, because they were expecting to be on top of the world, yeah. pun intended. Yeah. And little attention was paid to existing designs used by societies living in polar regions because, say it with me, hashtag white people. Because um, what do those people I know? Was, I, was trying, I was trying to figure out if you were going to say racism or xenophobia or... Oh. Yeah. Colonialism. I couldn't figure out which hashtag I needed to I go with. I figure my so. hashtag kind of enca- encapsulated no, all d- of those, right? Like, I mean, you're not wrong. I just didn't know yeah. if I needed to chime in it's okay. with, with one of mine. It's okay. so, just. <laughs> Andre had speculated that the trip across the pole would take somewhere around two weeks. The expedition was provisioned with that in mind, and caches were set up strategically in case of disaster. But the caches were spread out across the wide Arctic expanse, and the team didn't have clothing or supplies to overwinter in the Arctic if they crashed. Uh. Before starting the march, the three men spent a week in a tent at the crash site, packing up and making decisions about what and how much to bring and where to go. Also, what you'll see on the Instagram for this the Strindberg continued to take he took photographs this whole time so it's actually really cool because you get to kind of see their progress throughout their journey that is really cool yeah the crew finally set off eastbound for the cache in Franz Josef land but after a week they had moved west due to the currents because the ice is moving they're on ice they're not on land they're just on solid ice Uh, They then changed direction towards northern Svalbard. Movement was slowed by ice drift and by the craggy surface of the pack ice. The three men had to pull the sledges themselves, and despite good reserves of food supplemented by shooting polar bears, the efforts against the moving, uneven ice wore them out. Ugh. By the time they crashed, they had... Geniuses, they had thrown some of the provisions overboard. They took the most of the rest with them on leaving the crash site, along with other necessities such as guns, tent, ammunition, and cooking utensils, making a load on each sled of more than 200 kilograms or 440 pounds. Oi, and they're pulling this. Yeah. After a week of walking, they sorted out and left behind a big pile of food and non-essential equipment, bringing the loads down to 130 kilograms, 290 pounds per sled. Still very heavy, but slightly better. not 400 pounds. Yeah. Uh, Despite these difficulties, Andre recorded in his diary, quote, morale remains good. With such comrades, one should be able to manage under, I may say, any circumstances, unquote. Aww. Brothers. Brothers. They reached land in early October after more than two months on the ice, setting foot on, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It's translated to White Island, just east of Svalbard. 
They perished there probably within two weeks after landfall. Nils Strindberg, though the youngest of the crew, probably died first because he is buried in a crevice and was covered with stones. His two comrades were found simply laying on the ground and had apparently died in their tent. It has not been possible to establish the reason for Strindberg's death. However, the diary revealed that all three men were sometimes plagued by digestive trouble, illness, and exhaustion during the trek over the sea ice. Except for one carrier pigeon and two buoys with news, the public heard nothing about the fate of the expedition participants for 33 years. (gasps) That's how long it took to find their bodies? Oh my gosh. The expedition's fate was the subject of myth and rumors. At the time of the disappearance, it was noted that a heavy storm had been raging and that the balloon had lost its steering lines at departure. Because, right, the, like, sailors on the ship told whoever when they got back. Eleven months after the expedition's first sighting of White Island, a Swedish polar expedition led by A.G. Nathorst was passing by just one kilometer offshore from the camp, but the weather stopped them from getting ashore. So this island, from what I read, has very thick ice kind of up to the land, so it's challenging for larger ships to get closer. Ah. Some of the international and national reports of the mystery took on the features of urban legends. They stoked a disrespect for the indigenous peoples of the Arctic, who were portrayed by newspapers as uncomprehending savages who had killed the three men or showed a deadly indifference to their plight. To which I say, even if there had been indigenous peoples that saw them, they're well within their rights to have an indifference because that's what a lot of European society throughout the years showed to them. Well, and as as we saw with friends like Lassiter looking for gold in the outback, the only help he got when he was by himself was from the indigenous population. So there's more likely that they would have been like, yo, you look like you're close to death. You want you want some help? Yeah. Like that that might have been it it first. But no. A year after the expedition's final communications, a hoax was sprung all the way in Syracuse, New York. The story goes that a staff member came across a starving and injured pigeon in the attic of St. Joseph's Hospital. It allegedly carried a cryptic message saying, quote, latitude 85 degrees, 45 inches. Is that how it works? I don't know. Longitude 15 degrees east. We are going very slowly. Very cold. Dogs are dead. Andre, August 17th, unquote. Despite inconsistencies with Andre's previous messages and other important details, the local press still ran with it. Some people believed that this bird had carried Andre's words and location all the way from the European Arctic to New York. Eventually, the whole incident proved a fake. First, Andre and his team never took dogs on their expedition, so... Secondly, the message was written in French, despite the fact that Andre was Swedish and communicating primarily with a Swedish newspaper. Finally, the New York Pigeons band had an odd insignia 
unrelated to anything from Andre or his team. According to sources, it greatly resembled the insignia of a local homing pigeon club in Syracuse. Oh. So, I guess we got to the bottom of that one. There's just some adorable homing pigeon nerds who are like, you know what we could do? You know what we should do? What would be super fun? Science. (laughs) Science. History. We'll solve a mystery. The remains of the expedition were found on August 5th, 1930 by the Norwegian Bratvag <laughs> sure, expedition, which picked up remains including two bodies identified as Andre and Frankel by monograms found on their clothing. A month later, the ship M.K. Isbjorn, hired by newspaper, made additional finds, among them the third body. Further, Diaries, notebooks, photographic negatives, the expedition's boat, and many utensils and other objects were also recovered. Upon the homecoming of the men's remains, King Gustav V delivered an oration. The explorers received a funeral with great honors. I love that. The three explorers were cremated and their ashes were interred together at a cemetery in Stockholm. Aww. The diaries that were found made it possible to trace the course of the expedition, which became a worldwide media event. It was also possible to develop the films from Nils Strindberg's camera, because as we know from previous Mount Everest discussions, film can survive in very cold environments as long as it's dry. Yep. So that's, and like I said, it's really freaking cool. Uh, one of the sources is basically just photos. It doesn't have a ton of information. It's called Don't Take Pictures in the show notes. Definitely check it out because um, I could only fit so many of the photos on Instagram. During the expedition and after the discovery of the remains, Andre was portrayed by most commentators as a hero. Over time, however, critical voices accumulated and today there is a differentiated picture of him. Hmm. But we're now we're getting into some theories. Looking back, it is clear that Andre's North Pole scheme was unrealistic. He relied on the winds blowing more or less in the direction he wanted to go, on being able to fine-tune his direction with the drag ropes, on the balloon being sealed tight enough to stay airborne for 30 days, and on no ice or snow sticking to the balloon to weigh it down. Hmm. Several modern writers have speculated that by the time of the departure for Svalbard in 1897, Andre had become a prisoner of his own successful funding campaign and of heightened national expectations. As such, they posit he may have felt it incapable of backing out or admitting faults in his plans in front of the press. Like he, there was the quote earlier in the episode of like, I can't, <laughs> basically, I can't back out again. Yeah. Based on the men's diaries, we know that the explorers frequently suffered from foot pains and diarrhea and were always tired, cold, and wet. Diary notes and observations end just a few days after they landed on White Island. Up to that point, these had been kept up even in hard conditions. This seems to indicate that something critical happened after a few days. When the three men moved 
to the island from the ice. They left much of their valuable equipment and, and stores outside the tent and even down by the water's edge, as if they were too exhausted, indifferent, or ill to carry it further. Suicide, which would have been possible with opium or morphine, is very unlikely in Strindberg's death, even though by this time all three no doubt realized they would die. Whatever Strindberg may have felt about the outcome of the expedition, it is nearly certain he would have judged the option of suicide as treachery to his fellow explorers. Hmm. One theory of the time was that the deaths may have had something to do with the ingestion of polar bear flesh carrying the trichinella parasite. When you said that they had been eating polar bear, that's what my brain said. This type of roundworm was found in the remains, like in a carcass of a polar bear on the island, examined by Danish physician Ernst Tried. Sure. Critics note that diarrhea which tried sites as the main symptomatic evidence, hardly needs an explanation beyond the general poor diet and physical misery the men endured, but some more specific symptoms of trichinosis are missing. Also, there were two other men. I didn't want to try, try to pronounce their names, so I just wrote two other men had lived largely on polar bear meat in exactly the same area for 15 months without any ill effects. Others note that the rate of death of trichinosis is only 0.2% and that the main symptom, fever, is never noted in any of the men's diaries, also commenting that no medicines against fever appear to have been consumed by the trio. Hmm. In 2010, writer and researcher Bea Uthma of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm rejected the theory that larva of the trichinella killed the expedition members. After examining the men's clothes, finding what was most likely rips from polar bears in String Strindberg's preserved underpants, which he wore while being buried and were subsequently okay. sal salvaged in 1930, she concluded that at least Strindberg was killed by polar bears. Aww. Other suggestions have included vitamin A poisoning from eating polar bear liver. However, the diary shows Andre was aware of this danger. Vitamin A poisoning from eating seal liver is another theory mentioned by Bia Utsma, who, however, rejects it based on the fact that the men killed a large seal on September 19th and never noted any related illness. So, like, the 19th was previous, like, far enough yeah. back from when things got bad that it wasn't. Likely. It wouldn't be the thing that made it that made that happen to them. Right. Also, the rate of death from vitamin A poisoning is also really low. Another theory of the crew's death was published by the Arctic explorer Wilhelmer Stephenson, theorized in his book Unsolved Mysteries of the Arctic. Don't mind me while I add that to my TBR. I was gonna say I need to. <laughs> I need to give me one second. <laughs> Goodreads. Boop 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 boop. He theorized that Nil Strindberg may have drowned while chasing a polar bear and that the other two men had asphyxiated on carbon monoxide from a malfunctioning stove while cooking in their tent. To account for the unburned amount of fuel in the stove, Stephenson referred to his own experience with malfunctioning stoves that requires regular pumping to keep burning. So okay. 
you know, maybe the stove just went out after they died because they couldn't keep it going. Other theories go on to blame lead poisoning from the cans in which their food was stored, scurvy, botulism, and so on. All the fun stuff. A combination favored by researcher Rolf Knellström. You're doing great with these names, Thanks. babe. I'm really trying. I'm, my apologies to anyone of the Nordic countries. <laughs> Shout out to the Swedes. Shout out. Northern Hemisphere. Anyway, the combination favored by him is that the cold and hypothermia, the hypothermia of Arctic winter closed in, which paired with dehydration and general exhaustion, apathy and disappointment was no match for the men. Quote, Aww. posterity has expressed surprise that they died on White Island surrounded by food, he writes. The surprise is rather that they found the strength to live so long, unquote. Aww. And then... There were two different articles listed in on the NH NIH website. They the art, you know the studies are in Swedish, so I couldn't read them. But one is from 2000, one is from 2001. Just to go to show you, like up until then and even now, there's still disagreement. So like the one in 2000, the name of the study was the men of the Andre expedition probably died of botulism. A new hypothesis explains these mysterious deaths. And then just a year later in 2001, hypothermia was the most probable cause of death of men in the Andre expedition. Like, <laughs> people were like, I'm going to figure this out. In Bea Uthsma's award-winning book about the expedition, partly based on her own research, including analysis of a rarely seen autopsy report from 1930, she puts forth the following theory. Strindberg was attacked and killed by a polar bear which possibly also injured Frankel, who appears to have died shortly thereafter in the tent, wearing no mittens or shoes. Mm. Andre, having buried Strindberg and finding himself trapped alone on the island, unable to leave by himself, then possibly decided to commit suicide via morphine. This theory on Andre's cause of death is supported by the fact that his remains were found in a semi-upright position against a rock, a situation unlikely to have been caused by polar bears, rifle by his side. In addition, nearly emptied morphine bottles were found on the site, as well as Andre's diary neatly wrapped with a sweater, hay, and balloon cloth, indicating that he perhaps wanted it to be preserved as a last measure in case someone would later find it. In 2020, Uthsma and a team of researchers were able to analyze Andre's final diary, which had not been examined since 1931. Ah, oh, I want that job. Oh, that sounds so much fun. Okay. Quote, they die there on the island despite having the resources to survive, explains Uthsma. Something happens, but no one knows what. It's like a medical murder mystery. Since the pages are covered in mold, you can only read roughly one in three words with the naked eye. Up to now, what we know of what happened on White Island has been based on interpretations of the text. Now, thanks to modern technology, we're able to actually read what it says. The project was expected to continue throughout the autumn and result in a scientific paper and a new book. Quote, I hope we'll find something that will give me a clue as to the truth of what happened even if they didn't realize it at the time of writing. Like that it says they're eating tinned fish, which I know might have contained toxins. But we'll see. It's so incredibly thrilling, unquote. 
It is. It's so thrilling. My Googling did not turn up any new books, so it looks like we all have something to look forward to. Great. I'm also, I, I, I love, so what she said about the mold obscuring a lot of the text on the page. Mm-hmm can probably be bypassed by mass spectrometry so that they can see the actual lines of the words on the page past the thing that's technically on top of it, the mold. That is incredible and so exciting. And I want to read this so bad. (laughs) Well, you can look at the article um, from the, it's from the Karolinska Institute. It's in the show notes. And she has her other book, um, which is sort of like semi, like sort of fiction, but not. Like Devil in the White City kind of setup. I haven't read that one. Um, oh, okay. But like it's told through the lens of, it might have been Andre, it might have been Strindberg. One of the men had a fiance. So it's told sort of through oh. the lens of like her viewpoint and like letters that she was writing, I think. Hold on. It's called... It's called, like, Expedition, a Love Story or something like that. Oh, Yeah, The Expedition, a Love Story. Solving the Mystery of a Polar Tragedy. Oh, um, I want to read that. Yeah. It'd be sad. So. Exciting. Anyway, that's that's the story. We know, we know, we found their bodies, but we don't really know what happened to them. Or why they died. And sorry if it's a bummer, but it's also really cool. But it is really cool. I'm excited to see those photos that he took while they were, well, while they were there. Because that's, it's, it, photographs in general are fascinating. Like, uh, I went to an estate sale maybe about, I don't know, it was in the summer. So a handful of months ago. And the majority of the stuff that I have from that are photographs and photo albums and things like that. And I was just going through them and it's these weird snapshots of, you know, life of the, these two people's lives. And one of them was very cute and it made me, I kind of want to pull it out and uh, frame it because it is the annual Thanksgiving Monopoly game. <laughs> and it's all of them sitting around the table like look everyone looks really serious but it's from like 1976 it's so sweet so i love i love photographs i love being able to see okay. exactly what they were seeing so that's going to be a very fun deep dive for me that and the that and the article about the diary i'm going to be digging for days <laughs> but yeah that's that's the tale so if you're an outdoor cat uh, this winter, just make better choices. <laughs> you know, don't be. Don't go on the ice. If don't take unnecessary to- journeys. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, I love. I love these. I love these very Shannon episodes. Yeah, love a good expedition. An expedition. We love an expedition. <laughs> And with that, please remember, friends, this podcast doesn't exist. Shh. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Shh. I don't know. I'm a little loopy. I love you. I love you. Bye. I'll be there. Bye bye. <laughs> Emma, you're welcome. 
Listen to my beautiful song. The song of my people. I think I deviated, but that's okay. I sang you a little song. You did, thanks. You're welcome. This episode was researched, co-produced, and marketed by Shannon McCarthy. Co-produced and edited by Emma Kylie. Our theme song was composed and performed by Tom Emsley-Smith. The mailbag theme music was composed by Liam Kylie.